Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Well, winter is just around the corner, and everyone is wondering how cold it's going to get and how much snow is going to fall. Today, Dr. Judah Cohen gives us a sense of what we can expect. We dive into seasonal forecasting and examine, for example, how today's weather can provide clues into, for example, next month's weather. And in particular, we ask, why is Siberian snow cover important? And why do we need to pay attention to the stratosphere? Yeah, the stratosphere, that layer of air thousands of feet above where planes fly. And guess what? We'll break it all down as we discuss the 2018-2019 winter outlook. So welcome to this week's edition of Weather Geeks. I'm Dr. Greg Postel filling in for Marshall Shepard. And I'm joined by Dr. Judah Cohen, who is Director of Seasonal Forecasting of Atmospheric and Environmental Research in Lexington, Massachusetts. Dr. Cohen, thank you very much for joining us on Weather Geeks. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, so... um, NOAA recently came out with their seasonal forecast um, for the winter, which is um, apparently a, a largely influenced by variations in the ocean temperatures in the tropical Pacific, a phenomenon we know as, as El Nino. But you have an alternative approach to winter season forecasting in general, which relies on something um, entirely different and that may have an outcome really unlike theirs. So uh, explain. You know, I like to start on contrasting seasonal forecasting with the short-range forecasting, which I assume most of your listeners and viewers are are familiar with, you know, the the one to three to five, even, you know, we're going on to 10 days now. There's been, you know, drastic improvement, I think, certainly over the course of of my lifetime. You know, I um, remember when, you know, a three-day forecast was like, um, it was more like a, you know, spinning of the uh, throw of the dice. Uh, But, you know, that's not not the case anymore. And, And maybe... The accuracy we used to have for three-day forecasts now can be set for a seven-day forecast. So really tremendous strides have been made in the field of, of short-range forecasting. But seasonal forecasts, long-range forecasts, is, is not the same thing. I mean, there's been very, um, not that much change or evolution, really, or revolution, maybe we'd like to think of it better, you know, in this field. Uh, when, when I guess when I was maybe starting out in graduate school, uh, maybe even college. Let's say, let's say the 1980s. The thing that was most relied on was persistence, where um, you know basically yesterday's weather would you be used to predict tomorrow's weather, so or today's or tomorrow's weather. And though we certainly made advances from that, I don't think it's been all that great. And um, so starting in the late 80s, early 90s, again when I, I was in grad school, the big thing was. El Nino Southern Oscillation, or you know, sh- shorthand for ENSO, which is, uh, I guess, the, the variability in in sea surface temperatures in the uh, tropical Pacific, um, more specifically along the equator there in the eastern half of the, of the um, equatorial North Pacific. So um, when the waters are warm there in the eastern equatorial Pacific, that's called an El Nino. Uh, that happens to be what's coming up for this winter. And then when it's uh, cold in the eastern equatorial Pacific, that's called basically La Nina, and that's what we had last winter. 
So the, um, but I, I think things really haven't advanced, you know, much beyond that. Um, and I think most weather forecasts are certainly, um, the, the, the government forecast is really pretty much, that's all they use in making a seasonal forecast. Um, they are capitalizing on the, uh, warming trend. I don't know if they'll, you know, talk, say that out loud, but, uh, that's certainly, uh, becoming a bigger, bigger part of, of their forecast. So, um, so like for this, for this winter, um, it's, it's a, you know, their forecast is very warm. Um, you know, they say it's based on El Nino, though I think a lot of it is, is really just, uh, this global warming trend. And during El Nino, the, the thought is it's warmer in the Northwestern part of the United States and cooler in the southeastern part of the United States. That's kind of this canonical El Nino pattern. Also, it tends to, ha you have a um, more energized southern jet. So the jet along the southern part of the U.S. tends to have more energy, uh, more storms associated with it, and, and therefore heavier precipitation. So that's why during El Nino years, there is the expectation that there'll be, you know, he the heaviest rainfall will be in California and then along the, the Gulf Coast. Gulf of Mexico, those, those states that border the Gulf of Mexico. So that, you know, and I think that, to, you know, degree kind of fits the, the um, let's say, the, 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 the government's forecast, other private forecasters. Again, like, you know, again, the government forecast, I think, is taking more and more into account into um, global warming. That, so they don't actually forecast cold anywhere in the U.S. Uh, so even though you might think with El Nino is, a, is associated with this cold southeast it's not in their forecast, but I think other private forecasters have put it in. Yeah, so it's it's very clear in their forecast that their primary driver is this ENSO phenomenon. But uh, we know that there are others as well. Um, obviously, on the intraseasonal basis, on the week-to-week -week time scales, but also on larger time scales that your research focuses very specifically on. Um, and in particular, some of the boundary forcing from you know other areas of the world, in particular snow cover over Siberia. So in the late 1990s, you know, I was doing uh, some research um, as a postdoc at you know, MIT, and we're running a, a global climate model. Uh, you know, not too similar for what's used for the making these weather short-range weather predictions. And we we changed the snow cover across the whole hemisphere, and we got this um, pattern that really jumped out. It was known as the North Atlantic Oscillation. So again, I don't know how how comfortable your viewers are with the North Atlantic Oscillation or the Arctic Oscillation, but it, it could be thought of like um, a dipole in the atmosphere or this kind of exchange of mass. So when the, when it's negative, so we had, when we put in a lot of snow, it, we got this negative phase of North Atlantic Oscillation, which means a lot of high pressure over the Arctic regions and then lower pressure to the south, you know, let's say around uh, south of, you know, between 30 and 40 degrees north. So when, when you have that kind of pattern, the, the, the jet stream has shifted south. So that means the cold air can... Uh, can extend further south than usual, so we tend to have it doing these negative NAO winters, cold, cold in the eastern U.S., stormy or maybe you know increased probability of snowstorms, and the same thing also actually goes for Europe as well. So we you know so we saw this thing where we, we put in the model you know a lot of snow across the northern hemisphere, we had the negative NAO or colder winters, let's say, and then with less snow we had these uh, positive NAO and these milder winters. Um, so but that, you know. It, we want to get more into the details. There was a lot of skepticism when I, you know, I first came when I first came out with this result. I mean, because again, the the idea was that only the tropics were important in making these long range forecasts. So I figured, oh, you know, I would ever a little bit naively, I felt okay. Let me show it in the observations. This was just a model result, and 
We looked at the observations. We broke it up both into North America and Eurasia. And it turned out really most of the signal came, uh, and this was a winter, so we, we, we were varying the snow cover in the winter. But you know, it's hard to know cause and effect, especially looking at the observations. So we found out that actually the best correlation or the best association with, with, with fall snow cover, even more so than winter, which is non-intuitive, but then you know gives this uh, opportunity for forecasting, and it was turned out to be Eurasian snow cover, really not not so much North American, and and it turned out also we besides looking at season, we looked down by month, and October was the key month, and in October, you know most of the variability of the the rapid advance of snow cover is taking place across Siberia, so. Yeah, so we've been so we saw this opportunity to use October snow cover in in cross Siberia to predict the wet weather, um, the winter weather, and the it mostly works in the west eastern U.S. and the relationship is not as good in the western U.S. So the, really the you know as a predictor, it's it's definitely much better in the eastern U.S. than than the western U.S. Yeah, that's a, that's an, a fascinating approach to look at snow cover and its impacts on the jet stream high above and not just simultaneously, but down the road in months. So that is a uh, that's a pretty remarkable correlation. And, you know, just more generally, I mean, if someone and we'll get to exactly how that works uh, coming up in the next block, but sort of if you were to say to someone, so, well, OK, well, that's fine. You have seasonal forecast. Why does it matter to me? As an end user, for example, I mean, now you know you work in weather risk management as I did, and there are certain interests out there, certainly in the economy, that want to know slight deviations about climatology or about the normal that help them plan their business products. But as a sort of a general user, why do I care about seasonal forecasts upcoming? Why are they? Why would they be important to me? Well, again, I, and I think if those that um, need to plan are able to plan better with that information, I, you know, I don't know if. The- you know, the person maybe was listening, you know, it was just kind of um, Joe the citizen. I don't know of how much, you know, maybe whether to buy a snowblower or not, I guess, or buy some yeah, more s- more salt. Yeah. <laughs> more actually, right, I know yeah. so much. I mean, I mean, so in general, I mean, like energy companies are very much interested in or people that trade energy companies because mm-hmm. if it's a cold winter, that means more demand for energy. And, and, and those, you know, the price of natural gas, let's say, goes up and, and certainly... Um, and maybe as far as storage, you want last winter. I know, I know in New England, last winter during that cold spell in December, January, they almost depleted the amount of natural gas in New England. I mean, so if you had gotten advance warning of that, you could have, you know, they could have planned better um, rather than getting into the squeeze. Uh, also, uh, municipal, you know, planners, you know, how much snow are we going to get? I mean, I, I've actually found a pretty good relationship between Siberian snow cover in October and and snowfall in the northeastern cities, and. Um, you know, the, actually, the for, forecast for Boston worked out really well last year and um, actually, you know, presented that to the governor of Massachusetts, uh, you know, back in the, in, in the late fall. And, and I think it was turned out to be very helpful for them to plan, especially, you know, in advance of that, um, you know, those four consecutive nor'easters that we had, uh, you know, the start off March. Yeah, and you can, I know you can also buy uh, contracts for, your, for example, your heating bill. You can get a monthly plan in advance, <laughs> you know, and I'm wondering if, you know, somebody expects a cold winter. Um, I'm sure they were taking that into account, too, but it, it just may help you overall plan for, uh, you know, economic strategies like that. But, yeah, it's fascinating, too, because I remember I was in the um, – in the weather risk management business back in the 1990s and through much of the mid 2000s. And, um, you were right. I mean, cause we started really paying very close attention to 
the um, impacts of uh, El Nino, for example, and other factors in the seasonal forecasting. And that hadn't yet been explored because I remember the seasonal forecast really became, um, I would say, operational in the mid-90s. I remember Anthony Barnston listening to a um, conference that he gave from NSEP about that and uh, talking about how much there could be gleaned from this kind of uh, information coming forward about uh, three-month forecasts for many months ahead. And now we're kind of in that uh, space, I think, where the work that you're doing um, is very helpful in help giving us an idea of what might come down the line over and above your forecast that you can get in your app. Right. Yeah, you know, you bring about this, you know, Tony Barnson speaking, you know, in the 1990s. In a lot of ways, I think the, you know, the field hasn't advanced beyond. You could probably mm. give that same talk. You could, <laughs> be, yes. And it would be just, you know, up to date as it was in the 1990s. I mean, again, a lot of, I think a lot of the forecasting, you know, hasn't really moved beyond. And so, um, you know, and certainly I think for, for the government, that you know, it's been a crutch where they, you know, really, it's the only thing they'll, they'll rely on. And, you know, again, so with, with this work with, you know, with the Siberian Silk Road, I'm trying to say that, you know, there's, we can build upon this just one idea that, it, it, you know, seasonal forecast can be, can be more than just ENSO and, you know, and there's a value to it and, um, and benefit, you know, for, you know, for, for society to, to try to incorporate, um, you know, these newer ideas. And, and I think a lot of ways I'm hoping, I think maybe the, the you know, we had the super El Nino in 2015, 16, really the forecast, um, didn't work out that well, um, at least on the precipitation side, where you know they were expecting this big bounty of rainfall in California. It came the next year when it was you know, more of a, um, right. I guess it was transitioning into La Nina. But mm-hmm. and I think you know p- people realize you know uh, you know this is was as strong of an El Nino signal that you can get, and um, and yet it, the forecast did not work out so well. Uh, and so I'm hoping that people are, I, th- I feel like getting the sense that people are more open-minded to, to, to new ideas and hopefully, you know, that the, you know, a lot of, a lot of the other, whether operations or forecasters, you know, will try to, um, embrace or, you know, welcome, uh, new ideas in, in making a seasonal forecast such as Siberian snow cover, which has kind of been hanging on the fringe there, you know, in the diaspora for, for a long time. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it, you know, ENSO explains a small fraction of the, the variability that we get over North America. I mean, it's 20, 25% statistically of what you end up getting on a seasonal average. Um, it's a player, but as you are exploring, uh, there are others out there that can override, for example, the expectation from ENSO. And I'd like to talk about how that can happen coming up um, in the next block. We're going to take a break, but uh, yeah, Dr. Judah Cohen, um, we're talking about the influence of Eurasian snow cover in fall and North American winter patterns. So stay tuned. We'll talk about exactly how that relationship can work uh, and how good it is and why you should care. So please stay tuned. We'll be, we'll be right back on uh, Weather Geeks. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. 
Welcome back to Weather Geeks. I'm Dr. Greg Postel, filling in for uh, Marshall Shepard, and we're here with uh, Dr. Judah Cohen, from the uh, who's the Director of Seasonal Forecasting at Atmospheric Environmental Research. And we're looking at seasonal forecasts, and in particular, the forecasts for the winter season that relies on Eurasian snow cover in the late fall. Dr. Cohen, thank you very much for joining us. And I'm going to open up this block and sort of ask you to give us an idea of how that kind of connection works. Yeah, so there was certainly a lot of skepticism to this idea. How would Siberian snow cover impact our weather in the eastern U.S.? It's, it's very counterintuitive. It's not down. It's not like, you know, we think of the weather moving from west to east. I mean, the eastern U.S. is not, you know, just west or just east of Siberia. Uh, you know, really the connect. I mean, maybe some weather people have talked about the Siberian Express where the kind of the cold air comes across the pole. But all this was very kind of counterintuitive and not easily explained. I mean, we thought maybe... You know, at the beginning, of, when we first found this statistical relation, we're trying to explain it dynamically, give some kind of physical basis for it. We thought, okay, well, you put a lot of snow cover down in October, you still have some sun. Snow cover is the most reflective surface on Earth. And they have a lot of snow versus, you know, little snow, much more of the sunlight and solar radiation is being reflected back onto space. You build up these cold, dense air masses. I mean, that's, how you, that's actually how the Siberian high forms, which is the biggest high-pressure system in the, in the Northern Hemisphere. And then, so if it's, it gets really cold and it's dense and it wants to flow like, you know, molasses, let's say, there are these all these high topographic barriers, uh, Himalayas, and even across a lot of East Asia. So it's hard for that cold, dense air, which is hugging the surface, to kind of move east or south. So it's, it's just a um, path of least resistance either west into Europe or north over the North Pole and down kind of east of the Rockies. And that was our thinking, and that was very... Simplistic, but I mean, that was what we, you know, thought of at the time. But it turned out, you know, after doing more analysis, that it was much more complicated. And then rather than just kind of this surface process where this cold air is just, you know, flowing out, um, you know, across the northern hemisphere, it, it actually the signal goes from Siberia into the stratosphere. And, um, and if, and oh, they, that's interesting. Okay, so let me just back up for a second. Let me explain what the stratosphere is. So we're talking about snow cover, and then you're mentioning the stratosphere, which is really the base of it. It's a layer of air that is about the base of it where jet airplanes fly. So we're talking at 30 or 40 or 50,000 feet up. That's the base of it. So you're talking about snow cover impacting the atmospheric motions that high up. So how does that work? Yeah, so you could think of... Um so again, if you have that a lot of snow cover and it builds that cold, dense air, it kind of forms like a boulder in the atmosphere. And so, if let's say before you build up that Siberian high, you had the air could flow. Uh, there's no resistance to the air flowing, just in a straight line from west to east, and it's kind of it makes a just circular way. We we call it zonal flow, right, among meteorologists. Um, but you could you could think of it as a wave zero, right? If it's just kind of a, a donut or an, you know an annulus around the around the Earth. But now, if you put that, that you, you put down the snow cover, you build up that Siberian high. You have to build, put it like a boulder in that stream. So this, you know, we call it obviously in the air is a jet stream. But you put a boulder now. It can't just flow straight west east. Has to go around. You know, it's like a mountain, uh, a chain of mountains or something. So it's it's an impediment to that flow of air. So now, it has, so it has to either go north of the the Siberian high, it has to go south of the Siberian, it could split around it. But that introduces waves. And especially if you have very large waves in, in the in the atmosphere. And they're not, I'm not talking about the stratosphere, but in the troposphere where the jet stream is, you know, in the same level layer of atmosphere that that we live in, that gives off that that those waves give off energy. And then they not only propagate 
horizontally, but they also propagate vertically. So, um, and if they're of large enough magnitude or amplitude, they will escape the troposphere, the layer of air that we live in, and they will um, reach up into the stratosphere. So let me give you a quick analogy. So suppose you're in a bathtub and you wiggle your hand at the base of the, the tub, you're going to get movement of the water at the top. So there's some connection there. This is a fluid, a three-dimensional fluid, a continuous fluid. So movement someplace automatically is going to eventually be associated with movement somewhere else. So you can get, as you're saying, these waves that develop in the jet stream uh, closer to the Earth's surface eventually affect and impact layers far above that. Right, correct. Um, and it turns out the, the, the most favorable configuration of the jet stream that that will, will where energy will escape from the troposphere into the stratosphere where you know where the polar vortex um, resides. Uh, it has to be a low you know like a trough or low pressure over eastern Siberia extending into the in North Pacific there the Aleutian region and with uh, strong high pressure uh, you know in Western Asia maybe across Scandinavia uh, over to the Barents Kara Sea. So that that kind of wave this 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 wave one across Asia Eurasia kind of uh, with high pressure on the western half and low pressure on the eastern half. That is the configuration most favorable for this transferring of this energy uh, from, the, from the troposphere to, you know, from the lower layer to the stratosphere, the upper layer. So mm -hmm. if you have Siberian snow cover in East Asia, right, Siberia is in the eastern half of, of, of Eurasian continent, that, you know, that, that, that snow cover builds up cold air and um, cold air is, is more dense than warm air, so you kind of get this um, contraction of the of the layers in the atmosphere, and that forms the trough. And then, if you have, you know, I mean, just you know, just it's almost like a snapback. I mean, I guess if you force a trough, you know, uh, uh, in the east, you can also force this ridge in the west. And so, west, you could think of ridge also uh, associated with warm air. And uh, so that's a dilation of those layers. So you find you, you form like almost like this roller coaster where the air goes up. You know, over let you know over this what I described this Siberian high, but a little bit loosely, and then it comes back down. You know, comes comes down you know, across East Asia. That that kind of configuration or, or shape of the of the jet stream is what's most favorable um, for forcing this energy transfer into the into the stratosphere, and that's why I think Siberian snow cover is important and and can be used kind of as an indication of what our winter weather will be like. So you know, so in the stratosphere we have this polar vortex, and uh, I like to say you know. I, the, the pole vortex came into um, fashion, you know, in, in the winter of 2014. I think the Weather Channel was Oh, my was goodness. You have important. no idea. <laughs> and, I, and I know you guys definitely push it. I mean, I, at first I was, like, I was like offended by the whole thing because it was kind of a misuse of, um, uh, of, of the term pole vortex. I mean, the pole vortex and the strats, I mean, really what we were getting in 2014 was really more of a um, tropospheric kind of interaction with the polar vortex, but I, I've come to mm -hmm. love the polar vortex yes. and all of it. So I, you know, I'm ha and I like to use it more and more actually you know, in, in my work and in all of its three dimensional glory. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, I've, I've really come to embrace it. So, uh, at right. first I, you know, I was slow, I was hesitant, but I, I've, I've can't beat them, join them. So that was, that was my motto on this. Right. So the, so these wiggles then that are associated with the enhanced snow cover of Eurasia and the wiggles in the jet stream, in particular one preferred over that part of the world in Asia, finds its 
wiggle farther up in the atmosphere, and that can disrupt the sort of normally steady circular flow around the North Pole, otherwise known as the stratospheric polar vortex. And that can begin to wiggle itself, right? right? And begin to get very wavy depending on how much of that energy from low down gets up top. Right. So it's in its normal state. The, the polar vortex is, is just a fast-flowing ribbon or river of air that circles the North Pole. Mm-hmm. And when it's, you know, it's strong, I, I like to, you know, kind of give the analogy of a of a top. You know, it, it, when it's in its normal state, it's like a fast-spinning, you know, has a tight, tight-spinning, fast-top, yeah. right? And it's very mm-hmm. quiet, you know, just, and it sits over one place. And, and, the, and, and the polar vortex acts like a, a dam or a fence where it confines the cold air over the Arctic and you have much milder air across the lower latitudes, the middle latitudes, you know, including where we are in the United States. Mm-hmm. But then we're talking about this energy. So what happens is this energy escapes the troposphere and starts literally like banging on this, on the polar vortex, the like, like banging on this top. And what happens to the yeah. top? It starts to wobble. S- wobble, it starts to slow down, it starts to meander. It's not just sitting in this tight spin over one spot. And where the polar vortex goes, the cold air goes with it. So yeah. if it's, you know, so if in normal state, again, it's um, cold air sitting right over the Arctic, right, centered over the North Pole. Now, if it starts wobbling and meandering, and it's moving to lower latitudes, it takes the cold air with it, and uh, and and that really, so you have kind of it's like the dam bursts, and that cold air will rush. Um, you know, to mid latitudes. So these are episodes that you're talking about, right? When you have these events, we can call them stratospheric warming events, depending on how extensive they are. But you're disrupting and you're you're dislodging this cold pool of air that is normally centered over the pole and moving it to lower latitudes into places like where we live. Um, but they happen and on sort of weekly timescales. In other words, as I said, they're events, right? Um, how does that then sort of affect your whole view of the season? Because you're making seasonal forecasts. So you're saying that you expect, when you have this enhanced snow cover, you expect more of these types of events during the course of the cold season? Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, okay. like we refer to them as polar vortex disruptions or, or dis- right. um, disturbances. And so we had a paper that came out at the begin- very beginning of the year. Um, I was excited when it came out because, I mean, Polar vortex used to be thought of as really binary, as either strong or weak. Right. And we try to show there's more more nuance, there's more flavors to the you know the, the phases of the polar vortex than just you know strong and weak. But um, so you can get events that are a shorter scale and some that are longer scale. So um, last winter we had um, a polar vortex disruption in February, and that really its impact. So when you have this polar vortex disruption, you tend to get uh, the the jet stream in the troposphere shifts equatorward or shifts south, right? So that gives the air, the cold air can expand much further south than when, when the jet stream is further north. And also, if you're north of the jet stream, you tend to get snowstorms instead of rainstorms. So when you get these polar vortex disruptions, not only do you get increased probability of, of these cold air outbreaks, but you also get an increased probability of, of a snowstorm. But the the... You know, so that polar vortex disruption happened in the early February last year, and we were feeling the impacts of it right through the end of April. I mean, if, you know, if, again, if people remember, I mean, April was record cold. So, I mean, mm-hmm. that February, March, April, I mean, it, it almost went three months. So if you can get a, a, that, that, and that was a very large, ma- you know, amplitude magnitude polar vortex disruption. I think it was a record for, for February. When you get that type of scale of polar vortex disruption, it could certainly influence the, um, 
the seasonal mean, right? If something like that would happen in late December, early January, so maybe December you could still have a warm month, but then you would have cold January, February, March, and it re- would really definitely impact not only just the you know on the weather on a weekly timescale, but it really would show up in the in the seasonal averages. Yeah, and you could argue that even some of the extreme events that don't even last that long can have their footprint on a seasonal average, uh, which can make or break your forecast, right, <laughs> which yeah. is great because that you know right. So so actually that puts me in a good place to take a break. So we're going to take a break now, and we'll come back, and we'll talk about, um, Dr. Cohn, uh, your forecast for this upcoming winter, um, and also some idea of how reliable you feel these forecasts are. So um, lots to talk about still yet to come. Please be sure to uh, join back in with us here on Weather Geeks. Again, I'm Dr. Greg Postel, filling in for Marshall Shepard. I'm here with Dr. Judah Cohen from the... Atmospheric and Environmental Research Group in Lexington, uh, Massachusetts. So come back to us, please. Uh, We'll be right back after the break. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to Weather Geeks. I'm Dr. Greg Postel, again, filling in for uh, Marshall Shepard, um, talking on seasonal forecasting with the Director of Seasonal Forecasting at Atmospheric Environmental Research in Massachusetts. That would be Dr. Judah Cohen, who has a fascinating approach to winter forecasting that can give very different results that you might find anywhere else, um, in particular those from uh, the Climate Prediction Center. So with that in mind, Dr. Cohen, I'm going to ask you about this upcoming winter. Um, And we were talking about how Eurasian snow cover in fall, and when you get a lot of it, for example, in October uh, over Eurasia, you can then have a cold winter in the eastern half of the United States. So what are you finding in terms of snow cover this October, and what do you expect for this winter? So... The, the the advance of snow cover so far this this October has been sluggish. I mean, there's that's there's no other way to explain. It. I mean, it's not, uh, it's, uh, it's been pretty slow. I mean, this it's been low. Uh, the rate of advance is something else I look at uh, has been much slower than than normal. Uh, much slower than it has been in you know recent years. Uh, you know, past uh, oh, since 2000. I mean, uh, well. Since 2000, it was running uh, second lowest with uh, 2007. So, uh, you know, certainly over the past 20 years, uh, m- much you know, less snow than normal. So that would indicate a warm winter here in the eastern U.S. And actually, we, you know, we came out with a winter forecast last week, kind of this initial or preliminary forecast. And we are forecasting a mild winter in the eastern U.S., uh, maybe cold, you know, slightly below normal in the southwestern U.S. with... Um, Pretty actually pretty wet for much of the country, but certainly including the eastern seaboard, the Great Lakes, and and the and the Rockies. Bummer, right? If you're a winter lover, are you kind of? I mean, I know you like snow, right? Yeah, I love. Yeah, I mean, I want to. If I would, I would just <laughs> forecast. Totally objective here. I know that doesn't influence your forecast, right? Well, I, I think. Yeah, well, the fact that I put out this one one forecast, I think. Um, it's proof of that, but um, <laughs> yes, I mean, but, you know, the course. the numbers are the numbers. I, you know, I, I'm not going to fudge them. Uh, but call it as it is, right? Exactly. As I, I know, trying to call the balls and strikes, not you know, right? Not rooting for one of the teams. So if I'm a if I'm a winter right, if someone winter lover um, and I want a blizzard uh, and I see your forecast, 
is it is it completely deflate my hope and dreams of a nasty blizzard? No. So, I mean, uh, Whew, thank you. if you live in the northeastern <laughs> U.S. and people are say, oh, you know, it's not, it doesn't snow as much as it when I was a kid or used to. I mean, we're living in the golden era of snowstorms in the northeast. So I feel very fortunate. You know, um, there's this, uh, you're probably familiar with this, this index, Nessus Index, which kind of rates uh, northeast snowstorms like, they, like hurricanes or tornadoes. And, you know, it goes one to five. And we've had more of those, these type of blockbusters or crippling snowstorms in the past decade than, than any previous decade that we've been observing them. So uh, mm-hmm. more than triple than any of the, the next highest uh, decade. So we've had, um, uh, you know, so I guess we could argue what's the reason for that. But I certainly think that um, that there seems to be, I don't think it's just a coincidence or random. I think we the atmosphere has turned into more favorable uh, mm-hmm. for, for these snowstorms. And I would argue is because we're getting more of these polar vortex disruptions than we used to, or you know the, these disturbances. So I th- and as I explained earlier, when you get these polar vortex disruptions, um, you do get this increased uh, risk of of, of these uh, snowstorms, especially in the northeastern U.S. So uh, even if it's a warm winter, it doesn't mean um, you know you can't get a, you know kind of this blockbuster snowstorm and. Ah, that's what I wanted to hear because I was worried that, you know, with your uh, warm forecast and the, you know, reduction in snow cover, maybe we won't have that many disruptions of the stratospheric polar vortex and therefore less winter storms. But there still could be some is what you're telling me. There's a chance. You're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> I mean, it's not a perfect right, predictor. Right. I don't, you know, so let's I mean, talk I, about those, though. Yeah. So, I mean, let's I think, I, you know, these. I think sea ice is a really kind of a game uh, climate disruptor. Uh, you know, the fact mm-hmm. that we've had such a loss of sea ice, I think it's really changed uh how the whole atmosphere um works in a way i mean you know kind of the coupling that happens between the polar vortex the jet stream you know and the surface where the sea ice again i I talk about you know to get this disruption of the polar vortex i I described this kind of wave in the atmosphere so i was talking about the snow cover creates this cold pool of air or, or trough but the 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 lack of ice in the Arctic, yeah. The lack of sea ice, the you know, the melting away of sea ice exposes all this ocean water where it used to be covered by ice. It's, so it's mm-hmm. a, like a big, big uh, release of heat from the ocean into the atmosphere. So again, I talk about you know East Asia, you want to for or into the Lucians, you want to have a trough. But over mm-hmm. northwestern Eurasia, you want to have a ridge. And if you have so the one of the, the regions where the sea ice has been disappearing the fastest. So one of the regions that is north of Scandinavia there, Barents Karasis is called, you know, between near Svalbard and Scandinavia, in that area of the, of the of the globe. So that that heating, right, a ridge is forced is, is is due to warm air heating of the atmosphere. So even if the snow cover doesn't force the trough in East Asia, but it could still you could still the sea ice and the sea ice will be low. I mean, we have, there's no question about it that it's going to be. We're on the, uh, among. Yeah, not just below normal, but I think near the record uh, minimum so far in the season. It seems like we're at right, you know, very close to record low territory for this time of year. Didn't wasn't a wasn't a record minimum, but for this time of year, it's 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 close. Yeah, this this is like there's no question about it anymore. And I think and you know, so I, mean, I do put change. it in our model, um, but I mean, I think it's too early. I th- you know, the, it seems to me that where exactly the big sea ice negative anomalies set up is very important where, where maybe it might set, force the cold air. So I think it's too early to really know that. But uh, So I think the sea ice could be more and more of a player as we uh, get into further along in winter. So, that, and, you know, and so those- I consider that kind of an unknown and certainly could um, force a colder you know, solution to the winter than, than what our model mm-hmm. is predicting. 
Right, and and those are sort of uh, forcings from the the, um, the boundary, the ocean and the snow cover that sort of operate on these sort of seasonal timescales and change the statistics or the likelihood of these cold air events. But let's also talk about some other things that um, have more of a, a direct sort of intramonthly, uh, I guess, uh, my effect on our outcome here in the winter would be something like MJO, for example, tropical circulations that move around the globe, influence the jet stream patterns. And, and there's just no way to account for those now. As far as I know, there's n real no way to forecast uh, MJO reliably beyond, you know, and even some would argue even beyond a few days is not that good, but uh, this far out. And, and those kinds of things have a huge role sometimes in, in our cold outbreaks and our warm spells and our snowstorms. And those are just things you cannot account for right now. So they probably keep you up at night, <laughs> right? When you think about your forecast. And there's even research that this, the, the MJO, Matt and Julian oscillation can force these polar vortex disruptions. Yeah. Right, right, right. You know, if, if it is doing that, then yeah, that, that would, I would be, you would, I don't think you can know that ahead of time. Right. You can't. Also, I think, you know, this El Nino is, is a little different. Usually, I mean, we used to classically think of the El Nino where the warming was right east, you know, along South American coast there in the far eastern equatorial Pacific. This one is more, is further out, you know, closer to the dateline, a central Pacific El Nino. And it, there has been some research showing that those force colder winters uh, in the eastern U.S. And we didn't account for that in the model, you know, mm -hmm. east versus central uh, Pacific El Nino. So I do think that's also another factor that could, um, that lowers certainly confidence. I'm trying to see if I can quickly um, account for that in the model or kind of get it more sensitive to central versus eastern Pacific El Nino. But that's certainly, uh, right now with that warm forecast, that also is keeping me up at night that maybe I didn't really, <laughs> not capturing the real you know, effect of El Nino you know, for this upcoming winter. So, so what if you get, like, for example, I'm just going to play this out here. I'm going to game this out here. So what if we're in January so far, you know, you're, you're riding your forecast. It's looking pretty good. And then all of a sudden <laughs> an Arctic outbreak, uh, like we've never seen just comes coming down and you know, it's only going to last like 10 days, 15 days, something like that, you know, to best we can get. And, but it's so significant that it's going to really play havoc with your numbers. Are you going to issue an update on something like that for your seasonal outlook? Well, I mean, I won't update it once, you know. So if it's December, January, I'm not going to yeah. issue an update, you know, beyond December 1st. I might change if it's, let's say, I see that it's December 15th or something. I might, yeah, you know, right, change right. the January. So even if, let's say, we have a warm forecast with December, January, February, I mean, January, February, March could be much colder. Right, right. So in the middle of the game, you're not going to you're not going to change the you're not going to change the uh, right the forecast. Yeah, you know, we'll see. I, I mean, I think if we do start out with a warm winter, it'll be very hard to catch up. I mean, even like last year, we had yeah. this record cold in January, February. You know, about let's say two weeks, three two to three weeks, and that still was not enough to really for. I mean, you know, uh, over, overall the winter was cold, but I mean, you had to get all the months in there. Yeah, <laughs> but even you know, the, it's you know, you're like, wow, we're record cold. I mean, we'll never. Have, you know, uh, erase this anomaly. And then in February we had, you know, even more extreme record warm. So, uh, right. as far, at least as the warm side, uh, and never say never. Um, and one other thing I would, I would like to point out, you know, maybe is kind of what's keeping me up at night is the, this very warm waters near Alaska. Mm, um, you know, okay. they've ref in some papers they've come to call it the blob. I mean, it was, uh, there, this was very warm waters there. In two, the winters of 2013-14, 2014-15, again, it's very controversial. You know, was it is a chicken and egg problem? Did, did the warm waters force the ridge, or the ridge force the warm waters? And we don't really know. But uh, right. but I, I do believe if that you know, well, I'll, I'll I'll say this much. If I think if it's 
that that blob or you know those warm waters persist right through the winter. We'll have a cold winter in the eastern U.S. But whether it was the sea surface, you heard it here first. How about that? <laughs> yeah, but that's, I, don't think, I don't think I'm saying much because that'll just it'll indicate either well it could have forced a ridge, but it also might also just mean that there was a ridge right over here. The ridge there in the first place, right? Exactly. All right, so I got now. This I got to ask you this. This is maybe what everybody's waiting to hear. How accurate have your forecasts been? I think, you know, I, I think they've been, you know, quite good. I mean, directionally, so predicting a cold winter or warm winter, not, you know, not the error. Uh, but, you know, we've been right about 75% of the time, you know, in the eastern United States. And I think that's been pretty fairly consistent. Do you keep a, a set of statistics that are uh, publicly available for the forecast? I don't, uh, you know, we have a paper that shows some statistics on the forecast. I mean, it's from 2007, so clearly, you know, dated. I don't update. Uh, I mean, I do get asked a lot, you know, how accurate mm -hmm. you are, and uh, but I, I, there's no place you can go where, where I actually, um, you know, show uh, keep a, a scorecard of it. Uh, it's probably right. a good idea, but I don't have one. <laughs> gotcha. Well, I don't know. We're, we're all looking forward to uh, this upcoming winter and what it has to offer and look forward to checking out your, your forecast. Uh, that's wonderful stuff. I love the uh, application of um, these kinds of connections that are seemingly far and wide, but yet can have significant consequences for us all. So forecast we put out as preliminary. We'll be updating in November. I have a blog. I'll definitely post it there. So Oh, be sure to go there. Yeah. Can you give us the uh, address? Sure. Or uh, okay, we'll just kind of long, but it's, I mean, if you go to www.aer.com, it's, you know, it's, it's on the right hand corner. I mean, or if you just Google search, uh, Judah Cohen and Arctic oscillation, it'll show the first thing that'll pop up. So updated, week. updated weekly blog. How about that? All right. Fantastic. All right. Dr. Judah Cohen, director of seasonal forecasting at atmospheric and environmental research. Thank you so much for joining us on weather geeks. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you and learning so much about these kinds of connections. Thank you very much. Thank for you. It's us. been a pleasure. Look around. You can find cars like these on auto trader, new cars, used cars, electric cars, Maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.